Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Heeves. Welcome back to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heese, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Guys, we have a great episode for you here today. We have a West Michigan resident, Mr. Rob Vandervenen. Now, Rob is uh, very similar to me in a lot of ways in terms of our situations. He's on a small 14-acre piece, and we go through the story of kind of his habitat journey so far on his small property in Michigan in the highly pressured uh, state that we reside. So it's a great story. Rob uh, has done quite a bit of research and understands habitat work and has seen some results already. And we're going to talk about the different things he's done on his property and his up north property um, since getting into habitat management. A couple of things we're going to cover on this episode, some of his successes, you know, with, with TSI, fruit trees, um, how his property is laid out, what his plan is, some failures he's had. We talk about converting some hay field up front into, you know, Forbes and early successional growth. We talk about shooting does. We talk about conventional plots versus no-till, some fertilizer comparisons, um, and just a really awesome habitat-related conversation, guys. So, again, we have Rob Vandervenen from Michigan on here, and we'll get right to that shortly. Now, if you listen to last week's episode, we mentioned these surveys we're doing. So, in the show notes below the description of the podcast that you're listening to, there will be a link to multiple surveys um, up at the university here that we're working with. So if you guys wouldn't mind doing that and then commenting that you've left the survey and, and completed it on our Facebook or wherever, shoot me an email. If you added into a drawing that we're going to give away a pack of afflictor broadheads, a habitat manager, a f- American flag hoodie. we you got a bunch of those hoodies in now. And then um, I'm also going to throw in a National Deer Association First Flight Camo Pattern Ball Cap. So some cool stuff we're giving away just for completing very brief surveys. Um, all links in the show notes below will not take you very long, and it helps us out a lot as we try to grow and scale this podcast uh, here in 2022. Speaking of growing and scaling things, I've been waiting to announce this for quite a bit now. We've we've been teasing a little bit on December 1st coming along and, and some land plan changes we're making here at Habitat Podcast. So not only will you be able to work with Brian and I on your Habitat Podcast land plans or HP land plans, we are expanding the team. We have brought on four other team members as our land plan consultants for our HP land plans. Now, the reason we're doing this is to get more boots on the ground, get more visits to people's property versus the you know the digital or over the phone. The digital plans, they're great. They're less expensive, and we can definitely achieve goals with those plans. But having boots on the ground, you're going to be able to see property nuances, scout, see different things that you might not be able to see from digital. So what we're doing, we're strategically placed all over the Midwest from northeastern PA over to Wisconsin, down even to southeast Iowa, southern Indiana, um, you know, Brian and I, Michigan, Pittsburgh, Ohio covered. We are 
expanding the team, and you can read about our new HP land manager team at habitatpodcast.com slash landplans. Now, there's a link in the show notes below as well. You just hit the land plan link. It'll bring you right to the page. It'll tell you all about what we're offering, what our land plan services entail, and then a little bit about each of the HP land manager team member. So very excited to get that launched, and you will be hearing more from each of these team members in the future regarding our different styles, our different knowledge bases, and how we're all going to come together and present our clients with the best habitat hunting plan offered out there today. So with the, the team we're putting together, hands down, we're going to have the best plan available for our clients. All can be at habitatpodcast.com slash land plans. All right, guys. Lastly, I want to thank Chad Phelan at Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction. So Chad actually brought his son down to Ohio for a youth hunt recently, and he shot what looks to be about a 175-inch giant, guys. So Chad knows how to get on deer. He knows what good hunting property looks like. He's an agent here in Michigan um, that strictly deals with with residential slash recreational properties and has been doing it for a long time. If you're thinking about selling, uh, we were just talking on Habitat Chat today how land prices are just skyrocketed right now. It's a great time to sell, but also they're not making any more land. Um, rural land is being developed more and more, so actually recreational land is, is kind of shrinking. Um, so, you know, now might be a good time to buy. You look at it 10 years from now, you're going to probably wish you bought now. So it seems to be a pattern, and, and history repeating itself will show us a continual increase of um, hunting property and, and, and recreational property. So Chad over at Realtree United Country Land Pro, he is ready to take care of you. Give him a ring. We also have his information at HabitatPodcast.com if you just want to go there and find it from there. So without further ado, guys, we're going to get right into it here with Rob Vandervenen. Uh, thank you all to the listeners. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and we're going to get into it right now. All right, guys. Back in another episode of the Habitat Podcast, we have a very special guest here tonight, Mr. Rob Vandervenen. How you doing, Rob? Hey, Jared. Good. How you doing tonight? Good, good. I don't know if I want to call you Rob or just uh, freezer filler because you've been la- whacking and stacking this year, buddy. <laughs> yeah, man. It's It's been a good year for me. Uh, yeah, I've got six deer down so far this year, so it's uh, it's been a good year for sure. I can't complain. Heck yeah, man. Good for you. And, and I know... Um, you know, you've been a follower of the podcast for a while. I've been watching what you've been doing on Facebook and the different groups and whatnot. So I thought I'd I'd reach out and and get you on here. So welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I I found you once. I think you were probably about episode thirty when I first found you. Um, stumbled across you on Google, and gotcha. uh, yeah, man, I've been a, a big follower ever since. Well, we truly appreciate that. Um, you know, I guess you, you know how these things go. Let's hear about who you are, introduction, uh, where you're from, all that good stuff, and we'll get right into Habitat after that. Yeah, so I'm uh, from Michigan, um, same as you, on the uh, southwest side of the state, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, pretty much lived here my whole life, uh, lived over in Ann Arbor for a few years, but um, back in Grand Rapids now, I'm a manufacturing engineer. Uh, it's my full-time job. I've worked in 
automotive, defense, marine. Now I'm in the aviation field. I'm married. I have two kids, age five and two. And I started hunting about age 14. Um, grew up in a family where everyone hunted, but we didn't really take it seriously. It was kind of like the guys went to deer camp for gun season. We went to northern Michigan. And we took the trailers, and um, we never actually killed any deer. It was more just a, a guy vacation. <laughs> um, so that's that's how I grew up. My dad has has never killed a deer in his life, and he's he's hunted probably every year. Um, so I started at age fourteen. That's kind of how I started. Um, you know, huge bait piles, just truckloads of bait. You know, just doing that kind of style of hunting. And then about age seventeen, I really got more addicted to it, getting into bow hunting quite a bit more, starting hunting by myself. And I think it was probably about when Michigan banned baiting. I forget exactly when that was, but that's when I started really gravitating more towards the habitat side because I, I knew I had to change something to get more successful. Um, and my family had 40 acres in northern Michigan, so I started – um, kind of getting into the food plots, you know, not really knowing what I was doing, not really understanding soil tests yet, and just kind of planting, you know, the, the buck on the bag stuff from uh, Cabela's, things like that. Um, and then probably about a couple of years ago, age, I'm 32 now, probably about age 29, 30, I really got addicted into the habitat side. Um, and what I noticed that when I when I focused more on the habitat, when I when I stopped the whole baiting thing, my deer success and my buck success went up dramatically. So I, I noticed I was killing bucks almost every year, better bucks, um, focusing on some of the habitat types of things. So I I started really getting into it, following guys like you know Craig Harper, Grant Woods. Um, Bronson Strickland, Jeff Sturgis, Jim Brooker, Jake Elinger, those guys, and really, you know, reading their books, following them on YouTube, and then uh, obviously Habitat Podcast. I mean, you guys just really, really just kind of got my wheels turning on on doing more Habitat projects. So that's kind of my background of hunting. Um, primarily a deer hunter. I've done some out-of-state hunting for, for elk and caribou and bear and things like that. Um, and this is actually the first year I've hunted deer out-of-state. So I, just, I always told myself I wasn't going to hunt deer out-of-state because, you know, Michigan kind of has a reputation for small bucks. And I felt like once I went somewhere else, I would kind of ruin that. But finally this year, I, I decided to do some out-of-state hunting. So I did uh, some hunting in Missouri and Indiana. Um, but that's kind of my hunting background. And um, so right now I live on 14 acres uh, just outside Grand Rapids, Michigan, and bought this property a year ago. So we've only had it for um, two hunting seasons, probably about a year and a half. And really my entire focus this whole time has been on improving the habitat of the property. So the way I, I started this was really from some work I had done previously on my 
family's property in northern Michigan. So my family has 40 acres up in Baldwin, Michigan. Oh, yeah. And we did your typical deer camp up there, um, hunted it like crazy, like I said, started, you know, just running corn feeders all the time. And then and then once I started getting into the habitat side, the first thing I got into was the, the TSI and the hinge cutting. Um, and one thing that I really noticed is, is, you know, deer hunters really love oak trees, like almost like some guys worship oak trees, but <laughs> up there it's an oak forest. So I knew I had to open the canopy. I knew I had to get sunlight down to make it thicker. So what I started doing is just cutting down um, tons of trees. And I know a lot of guys will say, hey, you should get it logged. We had it logged in, I think it was 2005. Um, and this was probably 2014, 13, about that time where I started getting into the TSI. So it wasn't like we had tons and tons of, of you know, high-dollar lumber. Um, so I started cutting tons of oak trees, hinge-cutting trees. It was mostly white pine, oak, and poplar forest. Okay. And I'm sure you've read this. Thing. I think it's Craig Harper. It might be Bronson Strickland, but... They did a study where they showed that if you cut down about half of your oak trees, your acorn production will actually increase by 80% because the crown of the oak tree will be that much bigger. Yeah, um, that's, that's Dr. Harper there. Yep. Dr. Harper, yeah. And I would say I definitely noticed that. So it was it was really unreal. So going into an area of the forest where it was, you know, primarily mature oaks and just, you know, just cutting literally half of them down getting that sunlight in within a year or two that whole canopy would be full again completely blocked out all the sun again because those canopies expanded so much so i mean there, there's pros and cons here because you're trying to open the canopy but it's really kind of a never-ending battle of you got to just keep cutting and cutting and cutting to stay up on it but right at the same time you you are increasing that acorn production so um, well, and then if you also start out by locating which trees are good droppers versus not. Well, yeah, because a you know, lot of people don't realize that either is is not all your oaks are actually good droppers. You know, a lot of them don't drop much, and and a lot of them are only going to drop every three years or so. So, um, you know, oaks aren't like this almighty perfect food source. Um, so, yeah, I kept aggressively cutting and we just noticed the deer numbers kept getting more and more and more and really noticed a substantial increase in, in uh, deer quantity. So we started getting pretty aggressive into the doe harvest, shooting more does um, because we just noticed we couldn't grow food plots. We weren't getting very good regen um, where the sun was hitting the ground. So uh, continued to cut. He, my parents started getting a little bit annoyed because it started looking kind of you know like a tornado went through the land but <laughs> at the same time all of my relatives were loving the deer success we were having so um kind of had to find a happy medium there but um so we started after doing that too i started planting switchgrass up there doing some switchgrass plantings and uh, more food plots as well and um the way I look at that property is kind of like my test property because we don't have huge bucks up there. And, and now that uh, my nieces and nephews and cousins have, have kids that can hunt, we 
have a lot of youth hunters up there, and we have like a our deer camp for the youth, and uh, it's really awesome. So all our all my uh, small relatives go up there, and it's just like they go up there for youth season, and they pretty much all shoot a deer on their first set um, because you know it's in mid September. They're up there with their high powered rifles, sitting on food plots, and they pretty much all get a buck opening morning, and which I think is awesome. So I love it. So I do most of the habitat work up there for the kids now. Um, and I don't hunt it much anymore. And I just kind of, I like to do tests up there, figure out, you know, what works, what doesn't. Um, one thing with switchgrass I did up there, and I, I talked to Dave Bryce. And for those of you guys that don't know, Dave Bryce runs the um, Michigan's Quality Deer Habitat page. And most guys know him as the switchgrass godfather. And I remember I had this old field up there, and it was completely not prepped for switch. It was all weeds and junk, and this was in April. And I told him I wanted to put switchgrass in, and, and most guys would say, no, it's a terrible idea. you got to kill it off. You don't want the competition. But he, he told me, he's like, ah, man, if you, if you disc it in good, get the seed in and hit it with simazine pretty hard, and then, um, you know, hit it again the next year and mow it once. You'd probably be all right. And so I did that. And actually, that switch guess turned out absolutely phenomenal. Um, very good. And then the following year, I did more of your standard frost feed where I killed everything the previous late summer, fall, and then frost seeded. And that plot did quite a bit worse. So, I don't know, with switchgrass, I kind of lean more towards the actually tilling it in or disking it in um, late in the winter, early spring, so that seed can still stratify. But, um, so that, that's uh, kind of my uh, my story of, of the Baldwin property um, up north. And then, like I said, a year and a half ago, we bought uh, my home property, 14 acres, and just to kind of lay this out for you, it's it's a long rectangle, uh, 150 yards wide, 440 yards deep, um, and the road's on the north side. And so got, it runs it runs north to south, and your access is up on top on the north side. Up on top, right? Okay, gotcha. And then my house is about one third back off the road, okay. so I've got five acres of old cattle pasture in the front then there's my house then I've got four acres of cattle pasture behind the house so basically the house is surrounded by nine acres of old cattle pasture and then I've got about four acres of woods to the south and then one acre power line easement on the very very back okay so and what are the properties around you like the west of me is pure oak forest north of me pure oak forest east of me more old cattle pasture south of me is swamp and hardwoods okay so i don't have any ag within a mile so Interesting. the the first thing I, I i thought about okay my my goals for year one were a figure out the neighbors you know do they hunt do they not what are they hunting how many deer are they shooting? Um, figure out the deer numbers. You know, how many do we have? Are there huge bucks? Are there small bucks? Um, you know, 
should I shoot a bunch of does? Should I not? Um, determine the limiting factors. You know, is it food, water, cover, hunting pressure, etc.? And then implement minimal changes year one. I really just kind of wanted to figure it out. So the first thing I did was, you know, all right, I thought, all right, take soil samples of the power lines and the cattle pasture because I knew at some point I would I would put food plots in. So and and your goal, Rob, your goal with all this, or you're trying to shoot any deer, you're trying to shoot more mature deer. Good question. What's your so thought had, process in the beginning of this whole thing? For me, I'm kind of three and a half year old and older bucks. Yeah, um, so I think kind of similar to you for Michigan. So I've shot a lot of two year olds. Um, my biggest Michigan bucks a 120. Um, so nothing huge. Um, so, you know, I've had, I've had decent success, but like no monster. So for me, it was, Hey, I want, I want three and a half year olds. Um, typically my family will eat about four or five deer a year. So, um, I like to shoot about that many and I'm fine shooting does for all of that. And I have enough properties to hunt where I don't need to do it all on this property. So yeah, very similar situation to to me since pretty much you started talking. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah no, all the way back to the beginning. I mean, very similar. No, whenever I hear you talk, it's like, man, I got like same scenario because I know you talk about going up north, gun hunting, and um, from the west yeah. side, got, got Van in her name. Oh yeah, yeah, good Dutchman. So good Dutchman. Good. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. Continue on. Oh, uh, good. So the soil test came back, and everything up on the cattle pasture was really good. Um, that was not bad, and as expected, the power lines were just garbage. Um, pH was low, organic matter was low. So I thought, okay, year one, this is easy. The power lines, I can't really plant anything. I can't put trees. I can't have anything that gets tall because they're just going to mow it down. So. Um, I own the power lines, but they have an easement to it, so I'm allowed to plant it. So I thought, okay, I'm going to put some lime down. I'm going to put in, you know, just rye, spray it with, with glye, and then plant rye year one. So um, that's what I did back there as far as food plots. That's the only thing I did. The next thing is that I wanted to identify the trees and figure out, okay, what kind of trees do I have? Are they good or are they bad? Um. And that's some, a big thing, you know, from Craig Harper that he'll tell pretty much everyone. It's like if you can't identify your top ten trees or your top ten plants, I mean, you can't really do good habitat improvement. Um, so I use the app called uh, PlantNet on my phone, and that's great. You just take a picture of a leaf. It'll tell you what you got. Um, and the one thing I had a lot of red pine uh, along the power lines that they planted I think a while back for erosion. So I wanted to get rid of those. They were mature and just not doing much of anything. So I started cutting those down. Um, and then on the power lines, I started hinge cutting trees into the power lines so they weren't quite so wide open. Um, I figured they might cut them down when consumer, when the power company came through, but I thought that's fine. Um, so I, I added a little bit of, you know, edge feathering side cover to the power lines. I love it. And that, um, so that's kind of the first summer. And, and then really, what do your pines do after you cut those, those red pines out? What happened there since then I just, real quick? I just left going? them. Um, my goal was to cut them up for firewood, uh, but the first year I just left them, I didn't get to cutting them down yet. 
So I just Any those down. generation coming yes, back up? Yeah, so quite a bit of um, just like your briars and vines, um, a lot of like your, your early um, kind of junk brush, I would call it. Sure. Yeah. So that first okay. year, um, I didn't see a ton of deer. I would say, uh-huh. you know, okay amount. So I just got one doe. That was it. Um, as far as bucks, didn't see much, you know, a couple two-year-olds, but really not much. So I thought, okay, you know, I got my baseline. I figured out there which neighbors hunted, kind of what they shot. And they were kind of your typical six and eight-pointer bigger type Michigan hunters. Like if it's, if it's a basket rack, it's getting shot. Um, then that winter, my next thought was, okay, let's, let's get a logger in here. Let's get some trees out, um, get some more sunlight down. So I talked to a couple loggers and I had a lot of mature walnut. So the loggers were very leery about my power lines. They really did not want to go by them. They just said it's too much of a liability. I had a lot of mature oak along the power lines, but they just they didn't want to touch it. Um, so they did come in. I did have a logger come in that winter and take um, all the mature walnut. So he did that. He said the red pine was really worthless. He wouldn't touch it. So got that out and then, um, you know, got a nice check for that, which was nice. And... Then that kind of leads us into, you know, year two here. Thought, okay, and and one um, second, that yeah. all that black walnut and where he logged was, again, in that, like, four-acre patch towards your south end, right? That was mostly on the field edge. So okay. it was pretty easy access trees, um, a little bit in the woods, but, yeah, in that four acres. Okay, so and I'm, then, um, I'm painting the picture here, starting out from old cattle pasture, working down into – some probably some early successional field edge, and then your, yes. your timber, and then that, yep. that power yeah, line. Yeah, definitely got some, uh, got some autumn olive for sure. Nothing too crazy. You've got a little bit of that. Your bush honeysuckle. Sure. Um, you know, your typical invasives. And then the one nice thing with my logger, you know, he was out there with all of his equipment, and um, before we agreed on a price, I said, hey, can you dig me out two ponds while you're out here? Um, because I found some artesian wells on the property uh, where it was just kind of wet, but I found, you know, where they gushed out of the ground. And I said, hey, can you just kind of skim the top off here? And I'm just curious if I can get a pond. And he said, yep, no problem. He would do that. And then I also asked him, I said, can you you build a two-track through my woods to the very back of my property? Um, And he was like, yeah, no problem. It'll take me like two hours to push some trees down. So... It's kind of so nice. You, you just found these wells, just like wet spots, kind of water bubbling up in the ground yeah, in so certain I just, areas. I just found these really muddy, wet spots in the fields, um, and I just thought, God, why is this always wet? And I just started poking around more, and then I actually found water just gushing up from the ground. Wow. Cool. So, so this is pretty cool. So he just basically took his bobcat and just skimmed the top um, you know, maybe a foot off, not that much, and just made, you know, a little bit of a berm, a little bit of a dam. And within two days, the whole pond was full. I mean, I had a, a pond probably, not huge, like 30 feet by 30 feet, but it was it was more of just of a test pond to see if it would even work. Um, so I kind of get into that too here, but one of the goals for 
the next year then would be to make those bigger. Um, and I have a couple more artesian wells, and I thought I'll just dig some ponds there as well. But Did they hold water for most of the year, or were they deep enough? Oh, or no, they're, or they're completely full all year. Wow. Yeah. They, they never dried up once. Um, they never even changed their levels. So basically what that happened is, is they overflow. So those artesian wells are gushing so much water that they fill up and they find a, a way to drain out of it. Um, and then they drain out the side. But awesome. no, they're, they're always completely full. Very cool. Very cool. But So, yeah, going into year two, which would be this year, um, I could tell, number one, hands down, the biggest limiting factor was food. Um, just neighbors didn't really do food plots. There wasn't a ton of early successional growth in the area. There wasn't any ag within a mile. So I thought, okay, got to get some food plots. Um, and I love the quote from uh, – Lee Lukoski, when he says, my neighbors might out-hunt me, but they will not out-plant me. And I thought, <laughs> that's, that's my mentality here. I'm going to, you know, I've got nine acres of old cattle pasture. I've got basically an empty slate to do whatever I want. So and There's no food within a mile, no mile around, so you're, you're finding the lowest hole in the bucket here. Exactly. So I knew if I got some food that I would be able to pull some deer in. And then basically I would kind of reassess, like, all right, once I pull some deer in, I can get a better idea of, all right, how many deer are out here? What kind of bucks do we have? Because last year it was really just uh, getting random deer showing up. Um, so the first thing I did, I ordered um, 22 bare root uh, crab apple trees from uh, Northern Whitetail Crabs. And then I ordered those in the winter and planted those in April. Um, I put the Morse Nursery Survival Kits on all of those and uh, got 100% survival on those, and the, which was impressive because they got hammered by gypsy moths this summer. Um, yeah, they did really well. And the reason I picked uh, crab apples is because you can get varieties that drop later in the year, November, December, um, and I really wanted it. You know, a lot of your apples that you'll buy, you know, tractor supply might drop in September. Um, and I, I just didn't want that. And then the next thing I did was um, really work on improving the soil on the power lines, which is so acidic still, so sandy. So I added another 5,000 pounds of lime. And that was a one-acre area. Uh, spread that by hand. And then planted buckwheat. And then what I did behind the house was I killed off three acres of cattle pasture and then uh, did a no-till planting there, buckwheat. So I planted buckwheat. Well, I shouldn't say I planted pure buckwheat. So talking to uh, your buddy Al. So Al and I always like to nerd out about planting online. And um, <laughs> Al and I were talking, and he's like, man, you need more diversity. So, And I, I'm sure you've seen his um, – cover crop blend it's pretty ridiculous it's got like 13 crops in it oh yeah so batch and everything else in there oh everything so this year i thought okay i'm gonna i'm gonna spruce up my buckwheat planting a little bit so what i did was i did buckwheat spring oats crimson clover vetch sunflowers and cowpeas um and i'll say the cowpeas were eaten to the dirt 
not one survived. Sunflowers were eaten, and the vetch was eaten. Um, so the only thing that really survived was the crimson oats and buckwheat, uh, which was good. I mean, the deer were just hammering it. Um, but the buckwheat, oats, and, and crimson survived enough. And I think it was good that the deer were hammering that other stuff so hard that the buckwheat got four feet tall. Um, it, it did amazing. So so the uh, the cover crop did awesome. And then I also did uh, food plot screens, so I didn't just want three acres of wide open food plot. So I, I made kind of a maze, you know, kind of a, you know, Jake Elinger is really good at this with his food plot design. I love his designs where, you know, you put up the, the sorghum screen and really funnel the deer to your tree stands. You really block the view really well. So I, I kind of made these uh, obscure shaped food plots. I, I put sorghum all around the perimeter my whole property line, um, and and that did fantastic. <clears throat> so and, and was that a year one planting on all this stuff, one. right? Like everything's year one. Yep. yep. Okay. And what did your soil test look like in that area? Pretty prior good. To this? So the the cattle pasture, the pH was six point eight. Um, so I didn't do any lime. The phosphorus was very high. Um, which, I, which I gather is pretty typical for old cattle pasture. Um, so the phosphorus was high. Um, the potassium was, was average. So for, as far as my fertilizer, um, I didn't add any phosphorus at all, um, just um, nitrogen and potassium. Great. So that was pretty good. Um, so then the other thing I did, uh, part of the plot, I did perennial clover and chicory. So out of the three acres, I would say I had an acre of uh, clover and chicory. And then a third of it was brassicas and a third of it was grains. Um, so once I killed the cover crop, sure. um, I, I did the, uh, you know, the Jeff Sturgis no-till method with the, the Packer Max. Um, I uh, seeded in the brassicas and the grains. And the grains, I do wheat, rye, oats. Then I'll mix in a little bit of uh, crimson. And then with the brassicas, I do a light dusting a couple weeks later of rye, mostly just so I got something in the spring. Um, I really just don't like having that bare dirt. No, I I couldn't agree more. And when you're doing this, are you – it sounds like a destination food plot, right? Right behind the yes. house, something you can yes. watch out the so, window. So my mentality here, and, and if you remember my layout, south of my property is swamp, uh, big swamp. So I know they bed south, and they're going to move north. So my thought is, all right, my power lines is going to be more of my kill plot, my smaller plot. And then I'm going to have a lot of, um, you know, the early successional growth. I'm going to cut a lot of trees. I'm going to hinge. I'm make it thick around that plot. And then up by the house, I know the deer will be a little more skittish, you know, being by people. So that'll be more the destination food. Got it. Yes. That's more to kind of bring the deer in the area. I'm not really going to hunt them right there. I'm just going to keep them around and then hunt them on the south end of the property. And can you get by your destination food with your annual screening, with your storeroom screening to get back to the south end? Yeah, I cut a trail through the woods. I blocked it nice, you know, with hinge cutting. There Um, you go. And then with the the sorghum, I can slip in and out pretty well. And 
And as you know, in Michigan, the, the wind is usually southwest, so it's a perfect wind. My wind's blowing up towards the house typically, um, and I'm slipping in the power line. Yeah, no, that sounds like a plan. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I like it. You got to have that bulletproof access. It's a pretty, it's a pretty money access, yeah. Uh, and and the nice thing too is the deer typically don't want to stay in the power lines eating; they want to move up to the destination food. So it's not like I've got 50 deer around me and I'm trying to get out of my stand. Um. So one thing I, you probably saw that I posted on a Habitat chat this this year is I I was really intrigued on um, the Killer Food Plots. Organics fertilizer. Um, so you know me, I'm an engineer. I'm always trying to make things better. And working in automotive, I was a continuous improvement guy for a while. So I'm always trying to figure out like, how do I make the food plots, you know, grow faster, grow bigger, be more attractive? Like, how do I make it better? So um, over the, I've I've used organics now for a couple years, and I I just like kept like talking to to Nick Percy about it and him and I would just go back and forth talking and, and just trying to because the one difficult thing is you know his, his Goganics uh, the 444 you know let's say your soil test calls for triple uh, 12 well does that mean you put three bags of Goganics triple four down and, and the answer is no you don't um, it's about a one to one where one bag of conventional fertilizer is going to equal one bag of, of organics, even though the numbers aren't the same because um, a higher percentage of the nutrients get uptake, uh, get taken up by the roots. Yep. Um, because it's uh, organic black gypsum-based fertilizer. So I decided to do a test where I did half my plots conventional and half of them with organics. And you know, put up exclusion fences. I, I, um, and then I took measurements every every few weeks on it. And it was pretty fascinating that on the grain side, the groganics grew about 20% taller. I think this was four weeks after I planted. They were 20% taller. And then um, Nick actually didn't even know I was doing this test. He called me in September. I think he was kind of, he was almost worried I was doing this test. Wanted to make sure I was doing it right. Um, so he kind of walked me through different things to measure and analyze. And, and he said, he said the number one thing I would see that's a difference is the roots. So he's like, don't look so much above the ground. He's like, pull some plants up and look at the roots. So I did that. And it was very, very obvious the root mass was bigger on the groganics fertilizer side and um the exudates on the roots and, and al could explain that a lot better than i could but they had way more exudates on the roots um which is basically more of the organic matter in the roots so yeah i remember your yes. your test results that you posted and it was obvious um, oh yeah it was it was very very obvious for sure side by side and, pictures yeah the brassica side, I was more interested in with it being a, you know, a bulb, which is a root. But the issue is, I, you know, as an engineer, I had to deem the test inconclusive because my deer just ate the dog on brassicas <laughs> down to the dirt. And I just thought, this is just not a valid test. Like, these plants are just getting destroyed. So I didn't, I kind of just threw that test out. Um, but, uh, so, you know, my take on that, a lot of guys are like, all right, well, what, what do you take from it? My, my take is if, if you have a small property and you can only do a small 
you know, micro kill plot and you have, you know, you can't have failure. You know, that's your only plot that you can kill deer on. I mean, you want, you want as much success as possible. You want the odds in your favor. So I would say, you know, it's, it's probably worth the extra 10 bucks or whatever it costs for that fertilizer. Um, just, just to have a, a better plant. Um, so that's kind of my take on that. Yeah. I, th- I mean, you bring up a good point there, you know, it's not that much more expense to to make sure you're not going to fail. You know, Nick always right. said, always said, you know, failure is not an option. And and with his products, um, I very rarely have issues. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, they, they, so they make me look like a pro all the time. And, and like you said, if you're only planting an eighth of an acre, a quarter acre, like. You know, we spend more money on beer on the weekend than what that fertilizer is going to oh, be. For sure. It's like, know, yeah, so. a quarter acre, what are you using one bag of fertilizer? So, I mean, whether it costs $35 versus 20 I mean, who cares? Yep. Um, so the next big project I did for food, which th- this one was really interesting, is the, uh, the four or five acres in front of my house that was old cattle pasture, all I did was kill it. So I, I sprayed it all with glyphosate. Um, right around May 1st. And my goal here was to bring it back just uh, native vegetation, um, just to try to promote the forbs and, you know, the native grasses and just see um, how the deer responded to it. So this one absolutely blew my mind because that area drew more deer than the food plots and I would say I saw more deer feeding in that early new field growth all the way through I would say November 1 probably that's about when we had our first hard frost here um so you could tell that you know after the frost I didn't hit it but up until then the deer were just feeding in there non-stop I mean there was I had ragweed goldenrod pokeweed a lot of the the plants that the deer just absolutely love. Um, So that was a lot more successful than I expected. Just, you know, just literally all I did was just kill it. That's it. Nothing more. Um, So my plan on that for for next year is I'll probably spray it with clef um, to try to kill off some of those cool season grasses and really promote more of the forbs to come in. Um, just because of how successful that was. Yeah, it sounds like a plan. I mean, a late fall spring or something along those lines, class, yeah. you know, grass-specific, that'll be huge. I mean, I'm sure long-term I'll do more food plot, but it's like planting eight acres, nine acres of food plot, doing enough. I mean, I don't have a tractor. He's a four-wheeler and, you know, a Packer Max and a sprayer. I mean, that's, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of work. So I'm trying to be realistic with my resources here. Um, sure. So this year and year... So the next thing I did was to reassess the deer numbers in the area. So since my summer food plots were getting hit pretty hard and I could see them from the house, it was pretty easy for me to, to assess how many deer I had in the area. So there were a couple times that I had up to 30 deer um, at one time out in the fields feeding, and um, the buck-to-doe ratio was actually pretty good. I was about two to one, Um, so I could see them pretty easily. I could kind of assess which bucks were in the area, 
Um, in my mind, there was still nothing I would shoot. I had I had a handful of, of two-year-olds, um, but still nothing that was three or bigger. So with the deer just hammering the cover plots so hard and seeing, you know, 30 deer at a time on 14 acres, um, I knew there were just there were too many does, there were too many deer, and I had to take some out. So I decided that I wanted to shoot seven does off my property um, this fall. And the reason I came up with that number is um, if you follow QDMA, they say you can shoot, you know, a third of your does to maintain the numbers. So I knew I had 21. I counted 21 does, so I knew a third would maintain and I knew my neighbors would probably shoot a couple, so I thought, okay, I'd probably slim the herd slightly. Um, so that's how I got into that. And for me, I like to shoot the does early in the season. I know a lot of guys like to shoot them late. Um, honestly, my main reason for shooting them early, I like the practice. Um, I like getting a few does under my belt before I, I'm going for the bucks during the rut, um, whether it be shooting them with a gun or shooting them um, with a bow early in the season. We have that early doe season. Um, so I shot three of them during early doe season and then the rest during bow. But um, so it was kind of the doe assessment, the deer assessment there. And then um, the next thing I was thinking about was screening on the road. Like I said, there's a road on the north side. And I noticed that the deer would get pretty skittish in that front field that I killed off every time a car would go by. So I did plant switchgrass up there, so I'm on the first year planting of that. And um, as you know, switchgrass was it was a tough year for switch. So yeah. it did come up, but it it was crazy. I thought it was a total failure. And then right around August, I did notice a pretty big jump. So it did get about a foot and a half high this year, but it was sparse. It had major weed competition. So we'll see what that does next year. Um, are you planting like a, a strip for a screen? Are you planting like an acre? Or what are you doing? Yeah, I did, I did about 10 feet wide gotcha. um, along the road. So pretty much just for screening from the cars. Yep. Yep. And then uh, I continued to cut more and more um, on that south end, just kept inch cutting more trees, um, doing more TSI work. I'm, I'm definitely under the kind of – Jake Elinger mentality of I I do not discriminate with trees any any tree is a good tree to cut um, I just I cut them all um, unless it's a good stand for a tree stand I cut it so and uh, the next big thing for year two is really kind of more of the neighbors um, really just kind of figuring that out seeing if I could get them on board for you know, shooting some does, getting them, you know, possibly shooting bigger bucks. Um, talking to my neighbors, they're definitely under the mentality of, you know, oaks are king. Don't touch oaks. Don't don't cut oaks. Oaks are, you know, a deer's diet is 100% acorns. Um, <laughs> so they seem to be more and more on board because they see all the deer coming to my property and they keep making comments that, they're seeing less deer ever since I moved in because they're all on my property now. So I feel like I'm I'm making some headway with them and kind of convincing them that, hey, it actually is good to cut your trees down. That's that's not a bad thing. Um, you know, putting some food plots in is, is a good thing. 
So they've been really cool. I've actually started to let some of the neighbors hunt my property to take some does off. And um, I've got probably half of the neighbors verbally said they'd be on board to do a co-op. So I'm actually I'm going to kick off a, a co-op next year. And uh, I'm excited to do that. So we'll, we'll see what comes of that. Awesome. Yeah, I like how you're leading by example, and that's usually how people can well, start a good and, co-op. You know, and you probably have this too, and this drives me nuts. Is is these guys that say, "Well, if I don't shoot it, the neighbor will." And um, so on my property this year, I decided to pass every single buck. There was not one buck I would shoot. And um, sure enough, so there was uh, one of my neighbors. He shot two bucks with his bow that I passed both of them. And uh, he wanted to track them on my property. I said, yeah, that's fine. Um, so I was just talking with him, you know, just shooting the breeze and, you know, just kind of asking him what kind of bucks he shoots and why. And and he just basically said, he's like, yeah, man, I just kind of want meat for the freezer. I don't necessarily like shooting small bucks. I'm content shooting does. And, and I said, well, shit, man, come hunt my property. Like, I want to shoot way more does. Like, just shoot them over here, and then you don't have to shoot these small bucks that you seem like you're okay passing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we you know we became friends and and he's been hunting my property here, um some and and he said he'd be totally on board for a co-op. So, you know here I am getting mad at my neighbor for shooting small bucks and then you know being like I don't know why I'm passing them. He's shooting them all and then after just you know chatting it up with him for a half hour like now we're on the same page and he wants to he wants to be in a co-op and both of us are happy. So I think that's communication buddy man i hate that mentality yeah like every every deer hunter just like always complains about their neighbors and it's like well just go out and have a beer with them go talk with them like they're probably cooler than you think i mean some neighbors do suck i get that but (laughs) yeah but everybody who probably listens to listen to this podcast has thought you know at some point in their career of hunting that if i don't shoot it the the neighbor will and and while that while that did happen in, in your position how many deer did not get shot by the neighbor that were able to you know make it by him or make it around or, or whatever like exactly so right now yeah i had i had four two-year-olds that were hanging around my property all summer and, and my goal was to have one of them make it through and um so far uh three of them are still alive okay. um so i'm actually very impressed that and and i tell you three of them are alive two of those three have been shot and they're comfortable to be around yeah yeah so i thought man if i can get three two-year-olds there i'd be happy um and the thing is i bring up the co-op so i'm actually part of a co-op on another hunting property i i hunt and it has been unbelievably successful where you know we see more two-and-a-half-year-old bucks than we know what to do with. I mean, it's almost every set. You see two-and-a-half-year-old bucks, and we're targeting now three- and four-year-olds, actually primarily four-year-olds. And, um, you know, the, the hunter satisfaction has gone way up. Like, the engagement's gone up. It's, it's, it's really just been a huge success, and we've only been doing it for, I think, eight or nine years. So I, I think co-ops are great. I also do. Yep, it's proof is in the pudding, that's for sure. Definitely, definitely. So kind of like the last thing here, so here I am, you know, wrapping up this season, and, and now I'm looking at next year what the plans are. So limiting factor number one was food. Um, that was addressed this year. 
to me, limiting factor number two is cover. So I I don't think I'm I'm seeing the bigger bucks, the three year olds, because of the cover. And I don't have that cover. I don't have that security for them. So that's that's my next biggest priority. Um, I want to put quite a bit more switch gas on the power line. So I, I want to have a, still a kill plot there, but actually shrink that food plot, put in switch grass, um, thinking about mixing in some Egyptian wheat on the outside of it, continue with heavy TSI, more hinge cutting, and then on my east property line where it's just basically my field that goes right into my neighbor's field, that old cattle pasture, I'm going to put yeah. switchgrass that whole length just to kind of create more edge, to create more breakup um, right there. And then as far as food goes, I still think I need more food. The way the deer are just like, especially the brassicas right now, um, I think I have, and this is crazy too, so I haven't hunted my property once in November. Um, so this whole month I haven't hunted it just because I didn't have any target bucks. And usually November I'm, I'm pretty much buck hunting the whole month. Um, I think just this week I've had 12 different bucks on my property. Um, so you can definitely see that the deer know that there's not hunting pressure here. And my neighbors are hunting hard. And it's just pushing all the bucks to my, to my property, which is really cool to see. And I've got the food. And they are just hammering the food, especially the brassicas. So um, I'm kind of just making a mental note of that for next year of, of saying, hey, I think if I have more cover, more food, um, I would definitely have some good, you know, gun season and late season success with the bucks. So I'm adding one more acre of food plot kind of alongside the house and um, up front on some of that cattle pasture. I'm going to put another acre of uh, clover. and then. I just ordered, yeah, I ordered them from you, another uh, 10 pear trees, 10 chestnut trees, so from Morse Nursery, so I'm going to get those in when those come in this spring. Yes, and sir. I talked about the ponds, so one thing I want to do with the ponds is do the red osier dogwood propagations around them, so I want to find some red osier dogwoods this winter, um, do some cuttings. Um, get them in some root hormone, and then plant those around the ponds to create also more food and cover. So, I think you're going to like that. I mean, why not, right? Add some more diversity, some more food. Oh, know. for sure. And I think, like, you know, if if there's one main theme I've gotten from your podcast, it's, like, give the deer diversity. You know, diversity of cover, diversity of food, just – diversity of edge they just they like variety they don't like these monocultures of food plots and and you know oak forests so um just keep adding that so that's that's kind of my plan for next year um you know and uh again we'll, we'll reassess after a year and and continue just to kind of reevaluate and and fine-tune and tweak that plan year after year well yeah what what's cool about your your story here, if you will, and your engineering brain is that, you know, you really thought through a lot of this and did a lot of your testing on the up north property and, and research, you know, on the internet and everything else prior to really diving in and and doing something backwards. So Right, right. Like, I think um especially too, like if 
if you're if you're getting a small hunt, hunting property, you really don't have your margin of error for failure is a lot less. Um, you know, if you cut down too many trees, you can't put them back. On a big property, it's not as big of a deal. And I would agree wholeheartedly. With food plot failure, if you have a food plot fail, I mean, that's your only food plot on a small property. It's a big deal. So um, you definitely need to put more thought into it for sure. So, yeah, I would say that that's definitely a piece of advice. Another thing, too, like I noticed, I, I love, I wanted to touch on this at the end, Jeff Sturgis's quote of you'll kill more bucks or you kill more deer sitting on the couch. Um, and the main point of that is don't overhunt. Right. Don't hunt just for the sake of hunting. And, and this is something interesting. So I record all my hunts. I've got like, again, a big nerd here, engineer. I, I got this Excel file where I log all the deer I see, the weather, et cetera. Um, and, you know, you probably notice this too, Jared. As you have kids, you get busier, you know, and your your family gets less and less willing to let you go on more and more hunting trips. <laughs> um, so last year um, in Michigan, I, I killed a deer on 21% of my sets. And then this year I, I was up to 35%. So basically I, I get the mentality of, I don't go out hunting unless I'm almost positive I can kill a deer on that set. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, your story with that last buck you shot. You know, you left Ohio because you had good intel that you had a buck on your on your uh, 15 or, or 20 acres there, and you went up and you killed him. Um, and and I'm kind of that same, same mentality as, you know, use your intel, use your cell cams, use your previous year's, you know, information and go in when the time is right. Now, the rut is different. The rut can be crazy, but, you know, don't overpressure properties. That's really, that's so detrimental. I don't think guys, especially on small properties, you just, you cannot overhunt it. Um, yeah, just, just can't stress that enough. Human intrusion. Oh man. And yeah, like, like you said, the margin of error is so much different on a small property where, you know, you screw up, you're screwing up your entire property. You're screwing up one half of your entire property versus on a 40 or an 80 somewhere, you might be screwing up, you know, a 10th or a 15th yeah. of your property if you make a bad decision where, yeah, like like you said, like I'm learning to hunt less, hunt from the couch, call it that, hunt, you know, strike when the time is right. I had a guy tell me that a long time ago. Um, in the very first year I hunted my 15 acres, I didn't step foot on the property until like October 27th or something, 26th. Yeah. And that was extremely hard to do, being a brand new property owner and putting oh, sure. all the tree stands and food plots and everything else and then not even showing up till four weeks in. Yeah, um, no, I've, I've, got one, I've got one property like that. I, I will not set foot on it until October 26th because it's just year after year. It's just like, you know, I record all of my buck sightings and they don't come in until the end of October. So it's just, it's a waste of time. I'm just educating the does if I go in before that. Yep. So well, my property used to be like that too. Um, but the more habitat work I did and the more cover I provided in, in high-quality food, I'm, I'm seeing shooters in late September now. So I've almost moved up that that 
time stamp, if you will, a full month to when deer were showing up five years ago to when they show up now. Now, are um, you selling that property or are you keeping it? <laughs> That's the question of the day, my friend. I uh, I was thinking about selling it, and I don't know. After the season I had, I'm I'm thinking I might try to make some different plans. So. Yeah. I have a lot up in the air. I got that whole 70 acres up north. That's, that's a huge undertaking um, to work on, but it's, you know. Well, hey, it's, one piece of advice I'll give you up there is uh, yeah. in Baldwin, I planted a bunch of apple trees, and they were doing great, and they were like seven years old and getting apples, and then we didn't really have many bears, and then we had a bear show up, and he pushed all my fences down and cracked the trees in half so he could get the apples and killed everyone. Oh, my so gosh. I, I would just say if you got bears around, I'd be hesitant to put in fruit trees. Yeah, there's bears there for sure. I that was definitely – that that was painful to see all that. Oh, man. No, that's valuable advice. I've been – I've thought about that. We're going to have another guy coming on here soon that deals with the same kind of thing. So And we, like, we rarely see bear, you know, once every five, six years we might hear okay. about one or see one. They're not common, but it was just – just takes one time, and it's like, God, all that work for those trees is gone. Yeah, well, I wonder what people do about that. There's got to be some sort of trick up somebody's sleeve. If you're a listener and you can – Tell us how you protect your fruit trees from bears, your mass trees from bears. Let us know. Um, I'm sure you can build a lot stronger fence or this and that, but, I mean, yeah. is it sustainable? Is it worth the time and money? Or, or, you know, do we focus on a different sort of sweet candy treat than, than that? Yeah. Um, well, it's even like, too, I'm, I keep kicking around putting persimmons in, but I just keep hearing stories about if you get a really good, hard hard cold night you know in february it'll kill them and it's like do i really want to go through the hassle of planting them and they hit you know eight ten years old and then they die right right so yeah it's tough well rob i want to hear um about one of your multiple hunts this year i know you're you're in your building stage you know you're not you're not tagging out on three-and-a-half-year-olds quite yet, maybe next year. But tell us yeah, about this man. year. Yeah, definitely. And tell us about this year and kind of what – tell us maybe one exciting hunt, and then we'll get your favorite tree and uh, go from there. One of my most exciting hunts in Michigan. Let's do it, yeah. Um, let's see here. Well, I did not, I did not harvest any bucks. I did, uh, I did hit one big buck, three-and-a-half-year-old, low um this year but didn't recover him i would say um my favorite hunt i would say this year was the uh the early antlerless season so and and the reason that was so fun for me so i have three very distinct doe groups um on my property there was a group that fed in that front field that that field that i killed off there was a group that fed in the food plot behind my house and then there was a group that uh, fed on the power lines food plot. Um, and you could tell very clearly there was a dominant doe in each group. And they just, they were very separate. They did not <laughs> like to intermingle. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take out the dominant doe of each group. Because um, I have a feeling, you know, she might boot out some smaller bucks. She would just, yeah. I didn't like, she's going to be too smart. So, yeah. Um, I, I figured out the one up front was the oldest because she had triplets. So I thought, all right, she's got triplets. 
Um, I watched her all summer, and I want to take her first. Um, so I went out that Saturday morning, and uh, I shot her, and um, I had her patterned to a T. I mean, I knew her schedule so well. So I took her out. Did you go bow or, bow or gun? That was with a gun. So that was gun guns, yep. yep. Yeah, so I, I shot her, and then uh, – I, I hung a tree stand in, in what I call the sniper post so I could cover the whole backfield. And then I shot the dominant doe out of the backfield that night. And then it was Sunday night. I went out on the power lines, and they all came out, the group back there, and I took the dominant doe out of that group. So I took all three dominant does out in, in three sets. Yes, sir. Um, and and that was pretty exciting for me. That was pretty fun. I mean, that was my, you know, optimistic goal to take those out on, on early doe season, and, and it worked really well. So I would say that was a, that was probably one of the most successful hunts I've had, where, you know, three, three sets, three deer down. Well, that sure ups your odds and your percentages by far. I mean, batting. Oh, yeah. Batting a hundred, batting a thousand. Big, big confidence boost too. Just like that's why I say I like shooting does early. It just it gets your confidence up, and you know, especially with a bow. So I shot you know a few with a bow this year too, and it just like you know it kind of gives you that confidence for when you're drawing on a big deer. Like all right, I've I've shot a few deer this year. I'm good. I'm dialed. Yep. No kidding. No kidding. I know. Uh, plus, it's cold as a witch's. You know, you know what? Oh, I tell you what. So. so yeah, I just I butchered a deer last weekend too. Another one I shot, and just like getting all the winter fat off too. Actually, I I hate cutting all that winter fat off of them. It's just more work, more trimming. <laughs> I like it, and and then uh, so you whacked what five this year? I think uh, I remember six. correctly. Yeah, six. six. Yeah. Dang, good for you. So I want two more taken off my. I've shot five off my property here, and I want uh, I want two more, and I'm I'm letting my neighbors hunt to try to take two more. So we'll see if they can do it. If they can't get it done, I might I might sneak out there a couple more times. But yeah, I'd be curious to talk to you, you know, in a year from now and see, or even in the spring or summer and see what um, you know, what numbers you're seeing again. You know, cause. yeah, I'm 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 super curious next summer, um, because I just had two new two-year-olds show up this week that I wasn't aware of. So I thought, okay. all right, I've got five two-year-olds hanging around. I'm a, I'm really curious if they make it through, see what they look like next summer, and then to kind of reassess the doe numbers, see where they're at again. That's awesome, and I I want to wrap this up. I we normally wrap up with this question, as you've heard. I'm forgetting to ask it recently, but um, your favorite tree. So, you know, you've ordered some, some more trees through, you know, me, I'm a new dealer for them. Appreciate that. We got you hooked up with a good discount there. We're looking to get, you know, or you, you planted crabs. Um, you planted apple trees up north. You planted, uh, you said something else. Not the pears. Know. Yep, the pears. Yep. So what are your... Let's hear what your favorite tree is. Doesn't obviously say, have to be a mass tree, but let's hear what yeah, it is. Yeah, I would say. Um, I don't think you're gonna say oak. Well, you know, this is case. So to hunt out of. Sure. Multi trunk oak. Okay. Nice. Um, but yeah, you know me, man. I, Hard to beat. Hard to I'd beat. Probably, I'd probably be your only person ever that would say hinge cut oak. Um, <laughs> well, you and Ty, <laughs> you, and, you and Ty Miller. So uh, yeah, I know Ty cuts me up. Yeah. No. Um, so I would say hunting, I, I love to hunt out of a multi-trunk oak. I love that they hold their leaves, they're good cover. 
Um, I, I love that. And yeah. then as far as habitat, I would I would lean towards pear, um, nice. pear tree. And this is this is the main reason there is. So back when baiting was legal in Michigan, you know, me being Mr. Engineer, I would put out every single bait imaginable. I mean, beets, carrots, apples, corn, pears, like everything. And I would hunt over it, and I would assess which one they would hit first. And I would put trail cams over it to assess which ones they would eat more. Pear was always number one, always. Interesting. Every single time, so... I remember I uh, I hunted over a pear tree a couple times and and shot quite a few deer. So we'll see, we'll see. I've never um uh this is interesting too. So I planted a whole bunch of pear trees up in uh, Baldwin like ten years ago, and, and they're pretty big now. They're probably fifteen feet tall or twelve feet tall, and they've never produced a pear. And I actually put it out on Habitat Chat, and I said, guys, why why are my pears not producing? Well. I planted a variety that needs a cross pollinator, so that's that's the issue. I got to put a yep. cross pollinator up there, so I'll be doing that this spring. It just goes to show, though, how unique a pear tree is in those woods, right? So, oh, for sure. We always talk about being the, you know, the 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 property that sticks out, if you will. The the, the I'm having a freaking mind blank, but well, yeah, it's like you're going to. Um, so cross pollinate, yeah, you're you're gonna have a little honey hole once you do, you know. Yeah, you know, like I think Don Higgins has a good analogy. Think about a checkerboard. How do you make your box different than the rest? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So, so yeah, I mean that's what I'm constantly trying to do. You'll provide things on my property that my neighbors don't have. Here's a quick question. Outlier. That's what I. That's what I always say. So I was trying to think of there. Um, what are you seeing? In terms of APRs in your area, I know when I grew up, Baldwin, you know, my dad hunted up there, grandpa hunted up there. It wasn't much to brag about in terms of, of you know, rack bucks or, or older age class deer. Are you guys seeing any improvements up there? Yes, substantially. So wow. I would say before APRs, we would see maybe one eight point a year, and now it's it's fairly common we don't like i said we don't hunt there a ton now just because uh all our um nieces and nephews of the youth hunt they they hit a pretty and they don't have to follow aprs the youth don't um so they might shoot smaller ones but i would say our neighbors hunt pretty hard and and they take eight points every single year multiple eight points and we see them on trail cam um so by us, we, we definitely are seeing a significant increase in the two-and-a-half-year-olds, and we'll see some get to three-and-a-half for sure, whereas 10 years ago that was unheard of. Um, okay, yep. And I would say the baiting ban has been incredibly helpful because it was fairly common for everyone to run corn feeders year-round, and, and we did too. Um and especially pulled in those small bucks. They would pull in those four points and six points, and they'd all get shot over that corn. So it's it's nice that, for the most part, I know a lot of people still do bait, but for the most part, for sure. um, our neighbors aren't doing it, people around us aren't doing it, and it seems like the people are following the APR. So, yeah, I've seen some giants taken out of uh, the public lands, you know, a few miles away, but... Right by us, um, yeah, it's it's out. 
Awesome. Rob, that was a, a very great chat hearing your story from, you know, the, the beginning in terms of you as a habitat manager and secondly, your, your new property, your 15 acres or 14 acres. I'm, I'm pumped to, to keep in touch and to, uh, you know, see how it progresses. It sounds like you've been, like, like I said, doing your research. And I just wanted to say, hey, nice job, man, and, and appreciate you yeah, coming man, on. I'm, uh, I'm super story. excited to see how it turns out. You know, I'm definitely – I plan on living here pretty much my whole life, so I'm, I'm very patient. I don't feel like this urge, like I have to shoot a buck right now. If I don't shoot a buck out here for three, four years, like I, it's fine. Um, I'm definitely in it for the long term. I love the habitat work. I mean, I, I honestly, I love it almost as much as hunting now, so it's it's fun. Well, hey, man, thanks again, and uh, good luck the rest of the season if you get back out. Hey, take care, Jared. Good talking to you. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, habitatpodcast.com. We have our Habitat property consultation services on there under the land plan tab. Check out our HP land plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at habitatpodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. I'd like to thank Exodus Trail Cameras, the squirrel at nutplanter.com, Packer Max Calter Packers, Afflictor Broadheads, Killer Food Plots, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. <laughs>